0: Song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond, he's David Gibb, and we have a special guest this week. uh, One of the writers of that song, actually, Dylan Roth. Dylan, how are you? I'm great, Nick. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit more about your involvement with the Hell Yeah Babies. So the Hell Yeah Babies is a,
1: a band featuring myself, Mike Pfeiffer, Julian Ames, and Sam Paxton out of uh, Astoria, Queens. <clears throat> we've been together as a band for the better part of three years, but we actually, three of us go back a really long time, and we've been writing songs together since, like basically right out of high school. We went to grade school together. And so we play around New York and the Northeast. Uh, we have a record out called All the Things That You Believe, that that song is on, and uh, it's just been a, a really a long collaborative relationship.
0: That's great. I didn't realize that you were friends with your bandmates for so long, which uh, makes the next question I wanted – actually, the first question I wanted to ask. Uh, so you – we talked about this beforehand. You wrote The verses. And the bridge of that song? Uh, Dog of War is the first song that the Hell Yeah
1: Babies, as the full lineup, uh, after Sam Paxton joined the band, as originally it was a three-piece before he moved to New York, and then we were very excited to have him move to New York and join the band. His first practice with the band, he basically had the bones of this song instrumentally already done. And he was basically sort of playing the the... Almost like his entire part for the song... Um, he didn't have any words he didn't have any uh, words and melody to it and I just was kind of riffing on it came up with uh, a verse that the band really liked Uh, then uh, Mike Pfeiffer came in to write the chorus uh, and I wrapped things back around with the with with the bridge later on Uh, so it was actually a really a really wonderful first practice Uh, songwriting is not always that smooth or, or simple where you just everyone just seems to have a piece that fits right in but the song was pretty much
0: was uh, we had a strong first draft of the song in like two hours. Uh, so can you quick give us a quick interview uh, overview of the parts of a basic pop song? Just because, like, I I mean, I know I've heard of a bridge. We uh, I guessed it right before the show. I understand what a chorus is and like the verses are, but can you can kind of just give us like a quick like your basic four minute like Beatles pop song?
1: Uh, most pop songs have some variation on. Uh, The structure, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, verse, chorus. So the verse being uh, a section that usually has a common melody, but with different lyrics or some variation and some different instrumentation that repeats, but not really the same way. The chorus being a part of the song that's typically lyrically and melodically the same throughout, because the idea is you're supposed to anticipate it, and then when it returns, you maybe already know the words. It's the part people like to sing along to the most. A bridge is usually... uh, a section that is noticeably different from the verse of the chorus that kind of breaks things up, usually about two thirds of the way through a song, and helps you ramp back into your your ending. Whether it's a third verse, whether it's right into a chorus, uh, or some kind of outro, or a solo, a breakdown, and then when you're, <laughs> uh, that's usually the pieces. I mean, this is like a super simplification. But when you're t- thinking about your your basic top 40 pop song or you're like we're a power pop band. Right. So we're really rooted in like 60s pop rock. And that structure is
0: is pretty rigid uh, in, in that respect. I just, for Dave, that sounds pretty. That feels to me like a little bit like a, a wrestling match, especially the chorus part of like the comeback like that definitely reminds me of a wrestling match. Oh yeah, 100%.
2: Like he was talking about building anticipation, right? And that's like a theme that you and I have discussed over the last couple of of episodes just being a major part of wrestling. So, 100% I heard parallels in that description to to things we've gone over here already recently.
0: Do this it uh as somebody who writes more cuz I write reviews of wrestling shows and stuff like that, but you've actually like written mystery fiction and stuff like that. Does that sound similar in terms of the, not obviously not the structure, but like that you are trying to fit within, especially for you, you write mystery fiction, uh, a rigid, more rigid structure. Does that help with the writing for you or, and for Dylan, I'll ask both of you, like does having some sort of structure help uh, the writing process? Good writing is the
2: product of good organization um, so yeah, I think 100% structure is important. If you think about things like, for example, for me, I always like to think about Joseph Campbell a lot. That's a lens that I've both written about wrestling through and that I consider when I write my own stories. That idea of, you know, the hero's journey and the, the steps along the way. Um, so yeah, I 100% think that that kind of you know that outline or structure piece is so important. Definitely,
1: I oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. I agree with Dave in that the the more the more uh, of a certain structure that you have to work with the easier it is to know like, okay, here's where I need to be going. The more granted, the more rigid a structure you have, the easier it is to get lazy and become boring. And that's where hackery comes from, right? Like uh, I once, (laughs) after watching the first 20 James Bond movies, all the ones before Casino Royale that count, they all have a really rigid structure. Like they're, they're, there's pretty much like a, a rhythm to all of those films. It's very consistent. And just goofing around, being like, "Oh, I could plot out a James Bond movie," and like outlining something like that. When you have such a specific skeleton, uh, and what's more, you have an audience that wants that specific skeleton, it becomes very, it becomes it, it becomes very easy to 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 really shit something out. Uh, whether or not that's any good is another question. But like, if your job is to create something, um, that's why parody can sometimes be so cheap and easy to do because
0: if you know exactly the t- yeah. you're not innovating at all you're literally just like using a, a like a house that was already there and painting over it a different color exactly so yeah i am also interested because uh, i do not really write collaboratively uh in general um what is that like <laughs> in terms of because i think the other interesting thing uh and one of the big parallels is that uh you're performing this stuff together in the same way that like a wrestling team like uh, two guys working a match or two tag teams working a match or any number of people working a match you're like all on display for this like how does that get involved in the creative process like is there i mean obviously there's creative tension but like does having a, a more structured idea help in terms of that? Or do you have people pulling in different ways in terms of wanting it to fit in the structure and not fit in the structure and stuff like that?
1: Well, there's a lot of give and take in that uh, working. We almost we write almost every song together in the room in some way. Like uh, There are songs on the record that really belong almost entirely to one member of the band or another. And like I think we... Um, I'll take, for example, I brought in the song New York and I Love You, which is on the record. Pretty much, it was finished. I'd actually written it on piano by myself. Uh, and then brought it to the band and pitched it to them, being like, you guys want to do this song? And then, without really having to change that much of what was, like, the, the lyrics or melody or chord structure, then the effort became more about, okay, how do we fill this out? How do we make this feel like it belongs to the whole band? What... What is what is Julian playing on the drums? That's going to give us the feeling as to what the rhythm guitar ought to be like. And then once we have that in there, that'll give us the idea of what needs to be overlaid in the lead guitar. And so each member of the band brings their own voice um, in that sense. Even though the I've booked the thing, uh, I I've created the
0: i You're Randy Savage in the the steamboat
1: exactly. Match. I sat them down at the diner with a, with a with a binder and said, this is what the song looks like. And then they get to color in all of, they get to color in, It's I guess in this sense, it's kind of like I printed out the coloring book of the song, and mm-hmm. then the rest of the band got to add all of their colors and go over my lines here or there. And, uh, and that is an example of one that was very, very, very clearly finished. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas there are other songs where it might be one of us has half of it. We might have a verse and a chorus, or we might have a riff that we like. And then the rest of the band has to kind of go, Well, what if I go in here, and I, um, uh, and I change this chord here, so try and separate it, make it different from what you did on that other song. Because one of the other keys is to make sure that we're not all just, I'm not going to hesitate to throw wrestling terminology. And not, we're not all just trying to get our shit in, you know? Yeah, yeah. You uh, see, so like, well, you okay? You did that on that other song. This time, how about you try doing it this way? Do do this, but do this this thing that uh that I would do, but do it in your way so that you end up with a, a different third product altogether.
0: That reminds me of, is there's, there's a, been a shift, uh, right Dave? Uh, you're more familiar with the, uh, how they, because stri- you watch a lot more shoot interviews than I do quite frankly, um, that the way that matches are done and called has changed a lot. They've become a lot more like savage style, right? Yeah, I don't even think it's
2: really necessarily accurate to say that matches are really called anymore in the way they used to like where there was someone in charge who was, you know, pacing the match out there in the ring and deciding what they were going to do next and feeling the crowd. I mean, I think things are more or less predetermined even more so than they were, you know, by the standards of Savage or DDP or whoever else was was famous for doing that. Like Based on, you know, based on what you've heard in recent years, it's that there's a very clear idea that, that before they go out there that they may have practiced things earlier in the day in the ring, which it's like, you know, guys would practice the spot here or there back in the day or they would like roll around in the ring ahead of time to practice and stuff. But the idea of rehearsing a match is something that like a previous generation of wrestler would have thought was just like completely crazy and, and, and sort of against the whole artistry of wrestling.
0: Yeah, where I feel like with, songwriting you have to because you're putting it down on something but i I think what's interesting for me with that is like how do you use the so i would assume and and please correct me if i'm wrong um because i know you've changed lyrics dylan for instance on um dog of war you've made subtle changes to like you instead of tumblr you put twitter right is that correct
1: Yeah, on the single version, we had, uh, we had basically a joke on there that was, it felt a little bit too targeted at, at, uh, a particular, particular demo, which was not our intention. And it's interesting what you do when you have an opportunity to make a revision to something, uh,
0: do you find because when you your
1: audience, Because your audience because your audience teaches you things? Mm-hmm, that's,
0: yeah, exactly what I was going to ask. Yeah. Like, when you play a live version of it, do you go, oh, actually, they really liked if we extend that solo a little bit more? Do you, like, get that kind of feedback? Because I know that's how, like, stand-up comedians work. Or are you really just like, I'll play it. Does that affect, let's say you're going to do a revision. You're like, we're trying out this new stuff. Uh, we haven't... Or is that something musicians just don't do? They, they only release stuff... And then play it like how Oh no! it can be done in
1: every kind of order, you know, like um, a lot of when you're a band like ours, that's just kind of playing out a lot in the same area and like really just trying to build up an audience to have a record for. We don't save material for a record and we don't write in the studio in terms of like recording studio. We write songs at practice for shows and then we premiere them at shows and we see what the response is to that. And then maybe make some tweaks, and then when we go into the studio, we're basically just recording that, and then filling it out with the tools available to us. But when you're uh, a band that can be a full time band, and you have lots more resources at your disposal, uh, there will be you'll play you'll play your your re- released materials for the most part out on tour, uh, maybe you'll try out a thing here or there if you were fucking around with something on tour. But then you go and you take some time off, and you go into the studio. And you write a new new mess of songs. You write the new record. You record the new record. And then up until you start touring to promote the record, no one's heard that. It's done already. It's a finished product. Um, I've been at a lot of... um, I worked at a, a record store for a long time that used to be a place where a lot of bands would go to play on their release day of their album. And you'd have a lot of people saying at that show, hey, we've never done this show. We've never done this song live before, which is wild because like they spent months working on it right in the studio, but they'd never actually played it in person in front of people before. Uh, that is a very foreign idea to me because the hell yeah. Babies is a, is a
0: live band first. Do you find yourself like, have you ever been shocked by an audience's reaction to something you've done where you are like, Whoa, that did not get over at all. Or the opposite, like holy shit, I did not think they were gonna like that breakdown that much. I wish I could think of a specific
1: example. Um I would say just from the position that we're in, um we know our audience pretty well. In that, I mean, in all honesty, at the put at the place that we are in the band that we know a lot of the people who come to see us, and they come to see us many times. And so we kind of know what they're expecting. We're not necessarily writing for them. I mean, like any artist should be be considering their audience, but trying to write for themselves, write what they would like, try to create something that's that's honest, to try and move an audience. But um, I don't know. Sometimes when we're just doing just just jokes when we're playing for an audience that we don't know, like we do a lot of
0: banter and shit between songs, which I know doesn't really factor into our discussion so much here. No, but the performative aspect you're you're we've talked about this. You're building a persona. So like when you write for your audience, are you writing? uh, This is a weird question. I've never thought of talking about songwriting. Do you ever write a song? How do I put this? That, you know, the crowd I'm trying to figure out the, that the like do you ever go heel on a song knowing the crowd will like as part of like a larger thing you're doing for an album or something like, does that make sense? Am I making any sense or do I sound like a crazy person?
1: Oh, I definitely think that there are babyface and heel moves that you can do as an artist. I think that there are definitely uh, musicians and artists out there who are especially in pop and especially in hip hop. And if you could do a whole episode about how wrestling and hip hop have a lot in common, but I'm not the guy to have on it because I don't have the qualifications. There's those classic sort of baby face and heel tropes where baby faces are self-effacing and they're all about the crowd and then heels are about themselves and they don't really have respect for anybody for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, there are songs where we know we're not going to do this song for this audience unless, unless we basically want them to know that we don't, uh, and and, and and we don't necessarily uh, want us to think that we like them. I don't know. Uh, we have a song that's not on the record yet. We hope to record it soon called Generation Shark, which is uh, about eating the rich. So depending on the audience, if like – if we're here in New York and we're playing for – in the Lower East Side for our uh, assortment of broke queer socialist friends – uh, then Generation Shark is a, is is a slam dunk uh, because then we'll get off stage and start and start talking about how we would how we would serve Elon Musk, right? Like <laughs> we talk about it a lot. Um, but if we're gonna go to um, play suburban New Jersey and we don't know the crowd, it it really depends whether or not we'll do Generation Shark. Uh, if I were to play like a corporate gig, which is not a thing that we typically do, but we do need the money, so we would do it. <laughs> we would probably skip Generation Shark unless the crowd sucked. <laughs> if they were, if they, if they were like truly just really rude or disrespectful to the band, or we saw them being like shitty to staff at wherever the event was, then we might break it out because, like you know, fuck it. <laughs>
2: That's like the uh, that's like the Elvis Costello Radio Radio on SNL moment. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. There's no reason to do this song here. Radio,
0: radio. One, two, three, yeah, no. That's that's fascinating that you like play differently for different crowds. God, I'm trying to. That's that's really fascinating. I didn't even. That's I understand like maybe playing a different song, but like basically being like fuck these guys I don't like what how they're treating these people let's play a song about how much these people are assholes Is like fan- it hasn't happened yet Not what I'm yet. saying is that I don't think that we've done it yet but I'm
1: saying it's a thing I can imagine us doing like I think that we typically our job is to get over as like we're 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 generally like friendly respectful people um, who are just complete lunatics on stage but we don't really try to put anybody down, especially people who are there, right? Um, covers are a big baby face move that you can do in in a show, right? Play something that you know your audience really likes, somebody somebody from their town uh, or from their generation. That will, that will definitely get over. I, it's a little bit frustrating how much covers get you over versus your own songs, but it makes sense, right? Like a, a guy who comes in, if you don't know their finisher and then they hit their finisher and then the match is over, it's not as exciting. But if you do know somebody's finisher, or you know somebody's catchphrase, or you know their taunts, the first time that Bobby Roode did the glorious thing at an NXT show, um, people didn't know to sing it with them, right? Yeah, they thought he was just
0: weird. They were like, what are you, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, but now it's an automatic pop. Uh, people don't know our songs necessarily um, if we're not playing like, at Arlene's Grocery or the Bowery Electric or the Bowery Electric like we're not playing the Lower East Side or Williamsburg or Bushwick. People don't know our songs if we're traveling at all, right? mm-hmm. Um so if you want to get their attention, you got to give them something they do know. And I think that that's a very I think that's a, a very relatable thing for pro wrestling. If they don't know you and you want them to hate you, say something shitty about their town. And if you do want them to like you, wear their sports jersey.
0: (laughs) You wearing sports ball jerseys? I don't see that happening.
1: The next wave of Hell Yeah Babies is the basketball jersey wave.
2: Well, I guess my one question based on uh, what you just said, Dylan, which I thought was super interesting, is when you are in front of that audience who knows you really well, maybe who seek out your shows, you know, make a point to come when you're around – Uh, Are there songs you make them wait for? Like, do you try to build your set around, you know, getting to certain songs and and are you trying to really – take the the audience on an emotional ride throughout your set the way that you know wrestling promoters do with a show
1: i absolutely feel that way and my bandmates get annoyed when i when i talk too much about about wrestling in any way shape or form but yeah songs are matches and sets are cards you know you want to create you want to open with a big splash and you want to close with something that feels like the ending and in between you got to do you got to warm people up you got to cool people down
0: um Do you have songs? That's a really interesting, because, like, we I mean, we just had last week, we talked about Batch of the Beach. Do you have, like, obviously there's albums with filler songs, right? Because you need a certain amount. Like, if you have a record contract, you might need to have a certain amount of songs. You're literally like, let's fart out this song. But, like, do you have filler songs on your show set list for people to be able to, like, is that, like, what covers are to people that, like, do, like know your band kind of thing or like do you actually have like a I don't want you to name names necessarily but like do you have songs that are like all right this is people's piss break
1: uh no, I don't think so um we have the benefit of that our entire show is usually no longer than 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 45 minutes so no one should need a piss break during the show if they're having a good time so we don't but also like th- there's definitely a phenomenon um when I played in other bands that are not so much like a all, all high spots, all time type 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 uh type bands like we are we're an all we try to be an all killer no filler kind of band where all of our songs are fun and and energetic. They certainly have like different energies to them, but we don't have really any ballads or slow jams. Things don't get quiet a lot at Hell Yeah Babies songs. We don't really have any soft ones. Um, And that's kind of a choice that of just the kind of band that we are is that we're like a, have a really good time the whole time through kind of band. Uh, But I've been in other bands and certainly there's a, you know, uh, a very common phenomenon of you have your, your part where the lights come down and things get quiet, or maybe someone just starts playing acoustically solo by themselves for a song, gives the rest of the band a break, gives people the opportunity to just kind of chill and feel a different set of emotions. That's, uh, that's plenty common and a very, I think, a very useful tool when you're doing a longer set. In particular, uh, it's just that we're a, a bunch of like fucking goofballs, and so it's not really in our character to do the quiet, emotional beats. Uh, if I were to be doing a set where you do that, though, I would be very disappointed if someone went and took a piss while
0: I was doing my 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 deep, heartfelt, emotional song. Even though you know that <laughs> might be the for your band like i and, and this is kind of one of the things i want to talk to um so you're in a like we talked about earlier in in a collaborative group how much does the ego of credit come into this stuff or are you since you guys have been friends for so long does that not affect it because that's something you see a lot with like professional wrestling is guys not wanting necessarily to make guys look good because it doesn't make them look as good like is do you find is that a band you have to get out of if like if everybody's not on the same uh, pardon the pun note or like the same step or like every WWE promo of all time the same
1: page Yeah, (laughs) the only expression they have for this Um, I think in this band first of all we made the decision really early on once we started recording that uh, we looked at bands that were still together and bands that weren't over a long period of time and having had success and determined that, um, okay, what are, let's take uh, bands bands that are uh, that are not still together. a Creedence Clearwater Revival, <laughs> because they didn't want to share credit for songs as so they were fought over credit for songs and John Fogerty wrote all the good ones. And the rest of the band wasn't getting songwriting credit on them. And so they tried to do songwriting without them. And they sucked. And they sued each other. And it was lousy. Um, And then you have, uh, I think U2, for example. Uh, I think that they just credit, actually they might credit Bono and The Edge. But we decided that we wanted to be the kind of band that would succeed or fail together. And also we do a lot of collaboration in the room right like even new york and i love you which i in terms of the the traditional like um, rules about how songwriting credit works created by white people in the 50s uh, i by that rule i wrote that song by myself but that song as you hear it whether it's on stage or whether it's on the record or even on the rare occasion that i'll perform it like solo on piano that song has has become something else because we all worked on it together so Even in a situation like that where something came in pretty much whole, it really does belong to all of us, and so we really wanted to share credit on that and not fight over who contributed what percentage of yada, 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 right? And then there are songs like Dog of War or Grenadine Nosebleeds where it's like, we are absolutely all co-parents of this thing, so... But we remove the argument, right? So mm-hmm. it's not so much... Uh, we even really try to make sure that we all get moments in songs. Uh, if any of us is ever getting... When we're writing a song, we're pairing a song, we realize that one of us has kind of gotten bored with it, then maybe we'll mix up who's singing the vocal. Maybe we'll make sure, okay, we got to get you a good lick here. Let's give you a moment here. We really do try to share the spotlight as much as possible. Um, and that, I think, is really helpful. It, it's... Michael and I have been writing songs together for so long, and we've had – I feel like – and maybe if we start making a lot of money, then we'll find new arguments. But Michael and I have had I, – I want to believe that we've had all the big creative arguments that we're ever going to have. Uh, I probably just jinxed it by saying that, but we've had plenty of them but like we love each other to death and we don't want to do this separately from one another. It's like a decision that we had to make after a previous band broke up and we both tried to do this thing separately. Uh, and we both kind of hated it. Uh, we need to do this together. Um, and Julian and I like lived together for three years. We've been in two, three different bands together. Uh, and like, we're just like, let's, we want to do this together. And I'm so happy that Sam Got to join us, and he's he's in the we've I've you know I've I've known him for half as long I guess about five years now, but he's he's in he's in the family he's in that in that same category where it's like I want to I want to either succeed or fail with you, and if we start fighting about whose name goes on a thing, we can't do that. So, but it really is like you can't have one person do a good wrestling match. you, you can't do it even if it's, I don't know. Um, AJ, you can't, I don't think that anybody really carries anybody in
0: a match. That's really good. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's fair. How do you, how do you feel about that assessment, David?
2: Oh my gosh. Well, <laughs> I did see those matches, but they just outside with Roman reigns. So I don't know. Maybe I think that, that someone can be carried, but I also understand the point that Dylan's making, that it really does take uh, everybody doing their thing to really pull off something that kicks ass. You like in any kind of collaborative effort, you can't kick ass individually. That doesn't matter. You have to kick ass together.
0: Have you seen uh, or heard, because I know when I listen to like Samoa Joe's theme song, for instance, I think of how good that would be for a backing beat for a rap song. Like, do you hear entrance, like Bailey's song? Do you hear that and go, oh, I actually like that guitar. or, Or do you like completely separate yourself from that?
1: Oh, music is a super important part of wrestling, and um, my girlfriend Jenna Cass, uh, artist Jenna Cass, talk about this all the time, uh, where how important this specific specific structure of a wrestling entrance theme is. Um, This is really, I made sure to name drop because this is really her particular theory, and so I don't want to take credit for it. A wrestling theme needs to have two important beats to it. I don't mean beat musically. I mean beat more like story or comedically. You need you need the the part where you recognize, oh, it's this guy. And then you need the second beat, which is where the wrestler actually emerges. Mm-hmm. Like you used Bailey's theme as an example. So it starts with the bah, 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 bah. um that's when you know it's Bailey, she's coming. But then when the actual when the, when the when like when like the bass drops on it. That's when Bailey comes out. Um for uh for Seth Rollins, um, he has where the where the track starts and now he has the burn it down, which used to just be that blank space, right? But that's when the wrestler comes out. You need both of those. You need the piano intro to glorious, and then you need the first big glorious
0: uh. Yeah. It's really oh yeah, every time I've ever been in yeah, every time I've been in a room and that that second glorious is hit, and it's also similar to uh, Finn Balor when he starts. Um, yeah, and when they win a match, usually, and when a promo ends, when a segment ends, where it's
1: where it's where loss or promo, when they play the music again, they started at the second beat. You don't need the intro anymore; they just kick right into, I guess, usually what's sort of the chorus of the song because you don't need the intro part anymore.
0: What I think it's funny; is it hasn't been part of wrestling the entire time. It, the first one was uh, like the first official one, right? Was the Freebirds, right, Dave?
2: Uh, Yeah, I believe so, or at least they're the ones who are generally giving credit for it. I think also the Fantastics uh, were up there early on the list as well. But yeah, that that kind of era of 1980s tag teams was definitely where the the intro music was born.
0: And why do you think it was – because I feel like it was tag teams specifically uh, in part – and just in general, like the 80s. I understand the rocking wrestling connection, but I think what's interesting with the Freebirds – Is they made that felt like they had to be the first like no one else before them I feel like really made sense like they were the first rock and roll for lack of a better term wrestlers it felt like or like is there somebody else I'm not maybe superstar Billy Graham.
2: Uh, I was gonna say I, I know Gorgeous George came out to pomp and circumstance, a la Randy Savage. I think that's where Randy Savage took it from. But when we talk about like rock and roll, pop music type intros, it definitely was that kind of early '80s era with the with the Freebirds. And I think, like you said, the, the Freebirds are such an interesting case because the, the the WWE Rock and Wrestling is one kind of specific brand, and they had a Saturday morning cartoon, and they had vitamins and action figures. But like the Southern wrestling version of that was was way darker like and i'm not just talking about like the moral ambiguity of confederate flags like i'm talking about a much more like in your face like falling down drunk chewing tobacco juice like spilling out of the corners of your mouth uh, rock and roll party guy. It's a much darker, grittier kind of rock and wrestling than what WWE was presenting at the same time. So almost like different subgenres, different kinds of rock music going on concurrently.
0: Do you think you it could, you could have things go back to where there were no theme music or has it become such an integral part of the way that you sell a wrestler and sell records and honestly now with spotify like actually get plays like that feels like it's a way bigger deal now that you can actually quantify oh somebody's been listening like mark our our mutual friend mark Masick. he literally like of his top hundred spotify songs like 50 of them were uh, or a crazy amount of them were like wrestling themes. Like, do you think that the money or the creative part, do you think plays a bigger role in having wrestling theme music be such an important part? Cause like Dylan said, like Seth Rollins feels like he hit a different level when, now that he has to burn it down. So is it, more creative or more business, do you think?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's honestly more creative because I think it's part of putting the characters together, like Dylan was saying, and part of helping people anticipate the characters and part of, you know, signaling to people what's going on, like telling the people when to look up the ramp, for example. You know what I mean? That, the, that I think, But I, I can't really speak to the revenue and how stuff on Spotify works or anything like that because I have no freaking clue how that idea of the business or how that side of the business
0: I can, and it sucks. <laughs> but no, and I think because you uh, – the reason I bring that up is because uh, – and I'm sorry to hear that, Dylan. I uh... <laughs> 0. 0. 7 cents a play, boys. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. Um, I'm sorry, go No, on? but I, I always remember when I went through like old wrestling magazines because I had a stack of them in my house. Like WCW used to have like the slam jams and stuff like that. It feels like they were always trying to sell you on like the pile driver. Uh, music video and like record and stuff like that it feels like they found a different way to like monetize wrestling and then once that didn't totally work out it does feel like it became much more of like a well we actually like this this is actually something that works i think the
2: i think the forays into the record business both on wwf side with pile driver and wcws with slam jam i think it goes back to they used to say in the late 70s and early 80s that all baseball players wanted to be wrestlers and all wrestlers wanted to be baseball players. I think that just in that, like people who grew up in the seventies and were breaking into the the wrestling business in the early to mid eighties, rock and roll was so vitally important to like those, that, that generation really, and you know what I mean? I, it was the big driving force in the culture in a big way, much more so than it is now.
0: We have a really fascinating character in wrestling now, which is Elias. Uh, he used to be Elias Sampson. Now he's just Elias. And uh, as a, as a musician, do you find Elias, like, I don't want to say offensive, but is it kind of annoying that he's really not that great of a musician? No, no. That's what's so great about him.
1: I Elias is... I love the way – and I know that the joke is that at least with WWE that they're always like 10 years behind a trend for whenever they try to create a character based on something new that's happened. But I love Elias because his character isn't – at least I feel like an NXT and clearly it blew up a lot more on the main roster. But his character isn't so much like the big professional musician as he is the guy who brings an acoustic guitar to somebody else's party – and then sits on the stairs and tries to get everybody's attention. He's, anyway, here's Wonderwall, the wrestler. (laughs) And I fucking love it. And the fact that he's not that great, and I think that uh, me and my friends go back and forth as to whether or not he can really play a lot better than he plays, or if he's just getting better because he has to do it every other day now, like five days a week on tour or whatever. But if he were great, he couldn't He's good and like in terms of like he he knows what he's doing. He's a really a terrific wrestling character. If he were too good, he probably couldn't be the heel that he is. He has to be on like part of the idea, at least in the sort of American ideal of what a wrestling heel is he has to be in some way unworthy, right? He has to (laughs) cheat to win, or he has to be just a foul human being. So you root against them. There has to be some reason why you feel like this person, even if they win the match, they shouldn't, right? They have this job, but for whatever reason, they shouldn't be the success that they are. For him, it's clearly he's magnetic. He's incredibly charismatic as a character. And there are wrestlers who really thrive in the small rooms, And then when they go to the big rooms, they don't know what they're doing. Elias is the opposite because in order for that character to work, I stress about, I get stressed about this all the time because there are things that you can only do on stage if you have 20,000 people. Like, if Bruce Springsteen did the full E Street Band show for a group of, for for 20 people who don't know him, (laughs) there are times that he's going to look really pretentious. (laughs) He'll kick ass and he'll win a lot of people over. But like, if if he's playing a small stage or in the, or in the basement of a club that has a larger stage upstairs, and he tells them to turn the lights down, turn the lights down. I'm gonna go into a 20 minute story uh, about how the band got together while the while the band plays like a vamp behind him of like three or four chords, like for fucking ever. <laughs> you haven't earned that. You can't do it. Right, but when you do that at Madison Square Garden, it rules because you have the power to do it. Right, like you have the right atmosphere. You have that theatrical atmosphere. Elias can't exactly do the thing that he's doing right now at Full Sail, but at the Staples Center or whatever, it's fucking perfect because he can bring the lights down. Everybody turn the lights the lights up, and he has the environment of being Neil Young. <laughs> right. He, he can do that character because that's a place where Neil Young would be. So – but if he did that and then he was able to play – Neil Young, yeah. Yeah. Like granted, not the best guitar player in the world. But like if he could really do it, then he's not a heel anymore. He should go on tour and just play. <laughs> like I think there's a reason why, why, why Chris Jericho doesn't do songs in the ring. It's because he's good
0: at it. I actually have not heard Fozzie. Is Fozzie good?
1: If you like like new wave of British heavy metal stuff, like, yeah, Fozzie's good at what Fozzie does. Like, I have a lot of respect for Chris Jericho as a musician. Um and like, yeah, he's just doing the stuff he listened to as a kid for the most part, but fuck, man. I'm in a power-pop band. We sound like Elvis I sound like the stuff that my dad listened to when he was my age. A lot of the time so i can't really criticize that all that much
0: <laughs> so uh dave this this question's for you because you've been watching wrestling a lot longer uh where does elias fit with you next to someone like jeff jarrett who we both love is he do you feel like he's on a trajectory to be uh jeff jarrett type or do you think he doesn't quite have the like I don't want to say char- charisma is the wrong word because I think he has a lot of charisma, but do you think, I, I guess it would be the professional wrestling acumen, or do you think that's not as necessary for someone like Elias?
2: Well, I was just about to say, let's not leave out the part where Jeff Jarrett was like a great mechanic who could get a match out of anybody. Like, um, And I don't know that Elias necessarily has that. He's definitely capable of having a wrestling match. And I think that he's someone who, who definitely is capable of more than he's doing right now. But I think what made Jeff Jarrett uh, different is that kind of getting back to something Dylan says is that Jeff Jarrett was the pure charlatan. Like Jeff Jarrett was lip syncing. He couldn't even play an acoustic set, you know, like Elias does. It was that like Milli Vanilli 1990s uh, kind of deal that Jarrett was doing. So I think they're fundamentally different characters in that like, Elias doesn't claim to be a professional mu- uh, professional musician. He claims to be a drifter. And he's a, he's the guy who plays the guitar at the party, like Dylan said. He's an obnoxious guy. But he's not claiming to be a professional musician and being a charlatan at it the way Jeff Jarrett was. So I, I definitely think they're kind of fundamentally different characters, although they're both guys, you know, with guitars.
0: Well, and I, and I don't just mean that, though. I do like that they are both guys with guitars because I think there's something like – Different about Elias and Jeff Jarrett than even like Honky Tonk Man, where Honky Tonk Man, like, I understand that Jeff Jarrett was a charlatan and wasn't actually, but there was this idea that maybe he is. When I was watching, when I was a kid at least, I really wasn't sure because I didn't know who Jerry Jarrett was. I feel kind of the same way with Elias when I first saw him, where I think with Honky Tonk Man, I was always just like, no, you're terrible. This is terrible. You're a monster. Go away. Well, I mean, you weren't supposed to like him, right? He was the heel
2: in the era when the heels were heels. Um, so I, I guess that he was a successful heel, and that many people didn't like him. Um, and I think that was a more important tool in the toolbox at that time. So I think he was a valuable person to have the title on because I think Warrior ultimately beating him did mean something because he there was a lot of enmity towards him, and that was something that Warrior could use as a springboard. You know, to kind of um, turn up the glow, so to speak, on his aura, which sounds like something
0: the Ultimate Warrior would say, doesn't it? Or Naomi about the Ultimate Warrior. But I, I guess, I, I guess, what I'm
2: saying is, I hold Honky Tonk in slightly higher esteem than you do. But fundamentally, I don't think that he was a a great mechanic or a great draw uh, or any of those things, or necessarily a great character. Even though I do think he was an
0: effective. So, hero. so given that, do you what is it a mixture of like Dylan said? Um, actually being kind of terrible, but also being able to get it done in the ring and connect those two. Because I feel like there's been other, like maybe, and it just might be the audience, like rap, other than John Cena doing freestyle rap, has never really like, Men on a Mission didn't get over. What about
2: PN News? Who?
0: I'm just <laughs> <laughs> Or never Public mind. Enemy. Never public mind. Enemy, I believe also. Or did they just wave their hands in the air? Like they just...
2: They just said there was a... The, na, 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 na. Word out that song. Yeah, there <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> there's a uh, There's
1: definitely like a genre thing, though, about like, for instance, Aiden English could... as a great voice, but he has a great voice for like opera and Broadway stuff, which is typically not going to be what the wrestling audience is listening to. Like if Aiden English decided... Uh, granted, it's a very different kind of skill. Like it's, it's a, a different a different way to exercise your tools. So I don't know how well Aiden English would do on like, if he wanted to go out there and do like fucking Highway to Hell, which would be a much bigger hit with the crowd of the wrestling show. I don't know how well he would do just because it's probably not like, maybe it's not his range, maybe it's not the style that he does, but he's got the tools and it's like, he gets, he gets, or at least initially before Rusev Day got incredibly over his baby faces. But He got booed because he'd go out there and he would do opera. And nobody wants to listen to opera at the wrestling show for the most part. So he did have the chops, but just like I guess the rap is crap (laughs) crowd in their day didn't dig it. Like the same kind of – that kind of disconnect there.
0: I didn't even think of Aiden English as a singer despite the fact that's how he came up in large part. Like he's more of like a – Uh, No, he did sing, and they tried to make him as, like, an actor, but it was like, all you do is sing. That's not what actors do, necessarily. I mean, actors do sing, but only in musicals, and this isn't a musical. But I I think that is interesting that, like, it almost prevented him from getting over until they decided he was going to be a babyface, and they were just going to have him belt out Rusev Day. Like, they were, like, literally, like, you're actually good at this we need you to help this guy get over in a way that like, I don't think you could necessarily do with an Elias or a Jeff Jarrett. Um, yeah. That's really interesting that like it to be a bad guy because you have to be unworthy, especially in America, not being good at your instrument or better yet, not playing your instrument at all is like the ultimate heel thing to do. So if Elias ever got better, he'd have to turn into a, baby face can a character that is a singing character ever truly become like a big enough deal to be world champion or something like that do you think like would you take somebody like Elias who's so incompetent at singing let's say seriously as a wrestler I know that sounds kind of stupid but like does it does it feel like his and to me because it feel like if you're that shitty Unless you explicitly just start using it to trap guys and hitting them with your guitar, it seems like you'd be too distracted by that to ever be, like, a successful champion, even in this fake world of wrestling.
2: That kind of gets back to, like, the early to mid-90s, like, new generation or even slightly before then era, right, where everybody had a gimmick. It's like, man, none of these jobs, uh, they must not pay very well considering that, you know, you have to be that and a wrestler. So I guess, you know... Being a plumber and being a wrestling uh, wrestling guy, neither of those pays
1: very well, does it? It's the, it would be backwards now, though. It would be like, uh, oh, well, obviously, if you're going to get to do a cool job uh, where you're a performer and you're expressing yourself <laughs> as an artist, obviously you need to have at least one other job. So, of course, this guy's also a plumber or a pig plumber or whatever. It's the gig economy, baby. And <laughs> like most wrestlers, most wrestlers who are not in WWE or New Japan also have another job, like. Even if, they're, even if they're touring, if they're in Evolve, they might also work retail or be a graphic designer or some shit
0: or a tr- personal trainer. I have a question of just, like, who's letting Elias go out there and play music if he's that bad? That's the other thing. Like, I worry that – and I, I – I, if you guys disagree, disagree. I think it's a limiting character. Like, it was for Jeff Jarrett. I don't think Jeff Jarrett – who's, I think, genuinely great. Like, great, great was never going to be world champion with a uh, singing gimmick. One thing I, I want to say about Elias is I heard him
2: on Steve Austin's podcast a couple of months ago, maybe close to a year ago now. I don't know, but he specifically said that like he taught himself to play the guitar by looking up like tabs on Google and that, that he has absolutely no formal music experience. And that like, He just learns to play songs by ear and so like a lot of the time they're just like blatantly wrong because that's just his like best guess at it and he's not formally trained in any way like he learned by looking up tabs on on the computer so i think actually as much as like you say that being a transparently bad musician is a limiting factor i think it shows balls i think it shows that that guy is a heck of a performer if he's just like has the confidence to go out there and make his best guess at these songs and like kick ass at being almost good. You know what I mean? Really get in that lane where he's just good enough to be believable, but just bad enough to kind of get the heat. I think it's a good media. And I think he kind of has the perfect level of legitimate skill to pull it off.
1: I completely agree with Dave. And as soon as Seth is the honestly, I would pick I would pick Elias to take the IC belt off of off of Seth when this run is over. I want to see him I want to see him with a title and I want him because he has if he's holding the title that's when he should get like a ban. <laughs> that's when there should be people, people like backing him up when he's a champion. I Yeah. I would honestly What is the universal championship worth? Oh, it's dead. Right. It's dead. It's it's fucking it's fucking worthless. Give it to Elias.
0: I would rather the Universal Belt be... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like Elias would make a great Universal Champion. Um, so we just booked uh, Elias as Universal Champion. He's going to be Brock Lesnar. Uh, I think we can end on that. We will be having an episode next week that feels nice to say. We will be announcing... Next week's episode on Monday on the Juice Make Sugar Facebook feed, and I'll be tweeting it out. Dylan, did you have any plugs you wanted to do before we headed sure. out? Sure. Uh, I'm in the Hell Yeah Babies. We are at Hell Yeah Babies on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook. Our
1: albums on Spotify and Bandcamp, iTunes, anywhere you can find it. um uh, My personal Twitter is at Dylan Roth. That's Dylan is in Bob Roth is in David Lee, and uh, I tweet about wrestling. Uh, sometimes but usually late because I don't have cable and uh, New Japan airs really early in the morning, so uh, uh usually you can get my lukewarm,
0: my lukewarm day late wrestling takes on that feed. Yeah, they're scorching. Uh, d- Dave, did you have anything in particular or just the usual? Yeah,
2: just follow me at Dave Writes Junk and keep your eye on the wrestling estate. This week we have a roundtable that's uh, all about tag team wrestling, one of my favorite topics. So if you're listening to this, on uh friday the 18th <laughs> or later go check that out at the wrestling
0: estate yeah sounds awesome and you can catch me at the nixer that's t-h-e-n-1-c-k-s-t-e-r so yeah that's uh that's what we have for this week uh thank you so much for listening and uh, i guess uh say good night dave uh
2: good night dave
1: fight for me You'd rather wait and see how long I stay